Hello and welcome to the return of the Tully Show. At least I hope this will be the return. I am your COVID-19 infected host. My voice is holding on by a thread, but I am committed to sitting in the pocket, digging deep, gutting it out, and talking to Mark McGrath about new music releases from November of 1981. We've all got our priorities for some strange reason. That's mine. Before we get into it, it's going to be a great show. we got a lot of great music to talk about. Let me remind you, I've got like 100 Patreon-exclusive podcasts waiting to be enjoyed. My voice sounded great for most of those. Enjoy the rich, velvety, non-COVID-infected tone of my voice on all of those Patreon-exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. See you there. Coming to you live, on tape, on location, and rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California from my nearly 10-year-old son's bedroom boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of rock and roll Jeopardy. Hello, welcome back, and happy new year, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Happy, happy new year, Mr. Mike Tully. It's an honor to be here as always. And when do you stop saying happy new year? How deep into the year? Like when? I mean, I know it's kind of a cliche topic, but I, I seem mm-hmm. to think when you're starting to get the double digits, you're starting to push it a little bit, I think, with the happy new year. I feel like it's the first time you see somebody uh, who, who you hold dear within the first two weeks of the year. Oh, see, it, it depends on the person. That's it's sort of a sub- subjective. Role. I think so. I'm not I'm not like like I'll tell a person who is selling me stamps. Happy New Year on January 3rd. Not, on, <laughs> not, on, not on January 11th. Right, right, right. You know, there is the, the, the inherent goodwill of man to want to make other people feel better. That's how I think. And I like 2022 before we get into the music, because I like the yeah. numer- numerology. Of it. I like yeah. three, three of a kind, dude. I think that's great. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a new age dude, but something feels right about 2022 and how much worse can it be? And at least we got this far into the year without an insurrection. So that's kind of I will say, uh, wait, what, what, where, where are we taping this on? This, you're right. By this time last year, someone had already stormed the government. Boy, and here Go. I, here I was feeling crummy about me and the kids all sitting home with COVID. You make a good point. That's right. Small victories, buddy. Small victories, Tully, in 2022. Um, well. Uh, it, when I'm looking for peace of mind, I tend to go all the way back to late 1981. <laughs> That's the best segue you've ever done. <laughs> which it's it's funny because I have no doubt that if we were talking, if we were doing a new release show in November of 1981, there probably would have been all sorts of things, headlines that we could have led with about, like, well, we all know about the blah, blah, blah. We're all screwed there. And none of that stuff, obviously... Whatever was going on then, they all shook it off, and, yeah. and 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 no doubt we will figure out a way. Well, I wouldn't say no doubt. I have very little doubt that we will that we will do the same. But as I've said many times, one of the reasons I love talking about the early '80s is because anything that was going wrong back then can't hurt us now. The Russians, yeah. the Russians aren't coming. 
Right, right. Reagan's run his two terms, and uh, yeah. you know we're 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 here. But man, I was watching the serial killer thing on Netflix, and there was a gang of serial killer activity in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Man, yeah, I know. So, I don't know if it's weird to call that a golden age, but that was definitely <laughs> a, for nicknamed. Like, there's a, there's more serial killers working now than you realize. They just don't have the same caliber of gimmick. Well, I think you're right, but you also have to be more clever because there wasn't as many ways to get caught back then. There wasn't DNA and all that. So, I mean, if you're a serial killer today, you have to be beyond intelligent. Let's be honest. A lot of these serial killers were smart. They, their whole their whole getup was kind of getting over on the cops and like leaving the messages and, you know, the Zodiac killer and all that kind of stuff. So I, being a serial killer today with all the surveillance and, and digital footprints, it's almost... It's almost impressive if you can pull it off. You don't think that you could do it if you absolutely. I mean, obviously, you have no desire to, and you are more recognizable than the average person. But if you decided, no, if you if you have a motive, then that's going to be really, really, really difficult nowadays. But I wonder about that. Like, if you were, and this is something. These are the sorts of things that never would have entered my mind. Never did enter my mind until I talked to Jason Ellis for several thousand years. <laughs> Uh, several thousand uh, several thousand hours, I should say. But if, if I were a 75-year-old man who decided to go full Dexter and just go, yes. every single time I know somebody got away with something and it was because of a technicality, I'm just going to take him out. Nobody expects a 75-year-old man. I mean, you're smart enough to pull it off. I would make mistakes and be stupid. I would get lazy with it where you are so smart and cerebral and you would cover all your bases. So you are the perfect candidate mm. For a serial killer living amongst our mist, you know, you're a public figure. You're not, you know, you're not the first one I point a finger at. Family man, wonderful yeah. dad, excellent husband, perfect run, candidate. Run, I appreciate you saying that. Run this me smart theory of yours past my wife the next time that you see her. Oh, listen, for you to marry her, she's 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 smart too, man. So that, that's just one. There's a bunch of brainiacs living under that roof over there. To if, 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 if there's, if I ever successfully pull off a string of murders, know that she must have been the one who was masterminding it because <laughs> she is clear. I, I'll never forget the time that my son and he was so young that he didn't even know to have guile or to pull punches or whatever. He was like five or something. And he's like, so mom's the boss of the family, right? right. <laughs> See, you know, you pass down the smarts to the kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> You figured that out early, man. It is a yeah. woman's world, for sure. Okay, so for some weird reason, we have talked about so many huge, listenable, classic, culturally significant, monumental new music releases from the year 1981, and yet you and I have both been singularly fixated on the self-release of Motley Crue's debut album, Too Fast for Love, and happy day. It's finally, it's finally here. And I, I, mentioned, I mentioned this to you last time, a mere six months after playing their first show on the Sunset Strip. Now, Nikki Six had been in other bands before that, and I have to think that he adapted some material from that. But in my opinion, if you want to make the case that their second album, Shout at the Devil, is the superior album, I would listen to that argument. For me, it's a no-brainer. If I have a Desert Island Motley Crue disc, it is without a doubt too fast for love. I gather you're a fan as well. Oh yeah, I mean, I it's it's it, it started a revolution that record. You know, there was the heavy metal. Well, we weren't even calling it really heavy metal back then. You had your Van Halen. Um, you know, that was kind of the first wave of LA sort of hard rock. Uh, and then new wave kind of hit us hard. And there were some metal dudes who said, "I'm not playing Skinny Tie. I'm not doing that." And this is Motley Crue lighting the fuse 
which became the hair metal revolution, you know, but doing it with style and panache, because to me, a lot of their songs really dance in that glam rock sort of New York Dolls world, which eventually has a tentacle into the punk rock world as well, which is where my DNA is. So Molly Cruz spoke to me on such an aggressive rebel reality. And that first album, the production's untouchable. It still holds up today. I don't think it gets enough credit for the production of that first record. And the songwriting, you know, Nikki Six was just on it, man. He was just on it right there. Quick side note before we play a sample from that. I was I did a um a punk rock podcast. I'm not a big punk guy, so I did a, a pod on my Patreon that's just all of the punk music that I like that I thought I could turn people on to. And I realized something that I guess I'd sort of been hazily aware of. You, I think, would have been, if I'm correct in this um, uh, a conclusion I've come to, would have been more on top of this. To me, what happened with punk rock in America is the East Coast, New York, Boston, D.C. kind of people were uh remained true to the spirit of what the Ramones and other similar misfits bands did the west coast the critical difference that allowed when we say 90s is when punk went mainstream we're not talking about new york punk bands we're not talking about a bunch of guys from new york who looked or sounded like the Ramones we're talking about west coast punk is that where i came from there was punk and there was metal and never the twain should meet Starting with bands like Suicidal made the leap first, but then all of the no effects is all those guitar players. They are metal guitar players in punk bands. That is what 90s West Coast, Fletcher, Bad Religion. I mean, just go through the list. These are guys with heavy distortion and palm muting that no one in New York who was a punk purist would ever consider going anywhere near. I I think that's an excellent, excellent insight. And you're absolutely right about New York just being the, 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 the the, uh, the center point for, for carrying the punk rock ethos and torch. And I say that meaning it was more of a lifestyle in New York in the 80s. You know, bands like Murphy's Law, Agnostic Front, Cro-Mags, Leeway, uh, Crumb, Crumb Snatchers. These were all bands that were, this was a lifestyle. This wasn't like, oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make us a career. It's like, this is who we are. We're on the Lower East Side. We're hanging out. We're a gang. We just play music as well. Our best case scenario, we get picked up by a, a record label in Europe and we get to tour there once, but it was still more of a gang and lifestyle. Guys like, you know, Danny Diablo and Toby Morris from Ace 2 and Danny from Crown of Thorns. And, and, and they, they were living this thing and carrying at the very least the musical aesthetic. Where the West Coast, when it really started blowing up in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Lookout Records, Gilman Street up there in Berkeley, it had a lot more melody to it. And that's that when America caught up with the melody in punk rock, which was, let's say, 91 when Nevermind came out, because everybody's mind exploded. Now, I don't call Nirvana a punk rock band, but they certainly had punk rock, you know, a DNA and 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 uh, in their foundation, that led everybody to look backward. What were Kurt Cobain's uh, influences? Oh, this, that, the damned. Even Guns N' Roses had a lot to do with that, man, because they were wearing the damn shirt, smash it up, TSOL. So America was ready for punk to become commercial, and West Coast, West Coast had a little bit more melody in it, uh, you know, and that led, led to the Noodles from Offspring, definitely raised in metal. Even Tom Dumont from no doubt was in a band called Fifi LaRue, a no straight up heavy metal band. And he's got a lot of that chunk, 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 chunk playing in his stuff too. So it all, I think you're, 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 you're right on the money with that, with, with your insight. I got to listen to that. Uh, do I have to pay your Patreon to listen to that? 
I'll see if I can cut you a deal. I know a guy. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fascinated by it because I love your takes because they're they're not clouded by like an emotional feel. Do you know what I mean? It, you you can objectify it where I feel like, oh, I was there, man. You know what I mean? It's hard for me to really just sort of objectively look at it without just an emotional component. Well, I also find that as I get older and I find less new music to re to relate to, um, I, I, I can't uh, shoot myself in the foot when it comes to stuff that's from my golden era. You, you know, if it, if it was good, it was, I, I've made the point a million times, but like if I'm in New York and it's 1970 or what the hell was I talking about the other the other day uh i think it was it was like uh even even punk bands coming out oh yeah that's what on this exact same podcast i'm playing i'm like holy shit dude late era clash and the jam and uh and uh the damned as they get into the, the more popular you know mainstream rocky stuff i was like if i was there i would have been like i'm either joy division or i'm the jam because i can't be both and it's so stupid that of course you can be a smiths fan and a jam and I'm sure that there were some, but as you get older, hopefully these divisions these divisions melt away. You are you are only uh, hurting yourself when you pledge allegiance to one musical camp. Well, what happens when you're younger? It kind of defines who you are, who you yes. listen to, right? Then you fall in love, and your your heart gets broken, and you're like, "Holy shit!" These Air Supply songs hit a little differently now. So it's about having life experiences when you can truly get into how great a song is, and you stop being like you know, handcuffed by what you think is cool and what's not cool. Like you said, I always said Sex Pistols, Damned, and Clash when I was in high school. That was it. You couldn't tell me nothing. I got out of there and I discovered all this great music because I lived a little. I got my heart broken a few times. I got kicked around a little bit, you know? Yep. So to Motley Crue, no, I could play Live Wire. That's the first song off of the first Motley Crue album. That's the only song that stayed in their live set list for the vast majority of their career until they started. Well, what really do you think that is? Let me interrupt you real because I, yeah. I, I thought about this. There's yeah. so many great songs on that, and yeah. even casual Motley Crue songs. They're like, man, go around around. Mm -hmm. they, they know they know all the songs. Why? You think it's because they, Vince's voice was at an all time like high pitch register there? I'm not sure you could still, you know, that I'm maybe. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's that at all because Live Wire is has that high note B minor. Yeah, you're right. You know, if you had to do anything difficult on that album, it's Live Good Wire. Point. To me, it's because, and this is why I love that album so much, they hadn't quite figured out what the template was. They hadn't quite figured out what the blueprint was. It was the only one that fit the mold of everything that they did after that, you know? Yes. And, and that's what's fun about it is a word, one of the first adjectives that comes to mind for me in talking about the first Motley Crue album is innocence. And that's never a word that you are ever, ever, ever <laughs> going to use. And that's why I'm not going to play Livewire. I think anybody who has a casual knowledge of Motley Crue knows Livewire. It is the obvious first track on the album. It was the obvious single. But it, to me, it's not. It's one of the reasons why I love the album. But it, why I love this album particularly is, for example, the last song on the album, On With The Show. Yeah, the show is something rich. You can tell where Pretty Boy Floyd said, you know what, let's make a whole record after this one song. I mean, that that sounds like Steve Summers' voice right there, and the production is Pretty Boy Floyd. I, 
I just made the connection while I was sitting there isolating that. It's so odd to me. Everybody says that, and I know everybody's. I must just be like colorblind. Because I, I swear, everybody says that, and to me, he has a unique, he has a unique thing. You know, and, and and indeed, the I mean, best, the best Vince, song. Vince, Vince has a unique thing. No, I actually think Steve from Pretty Boy Floyd has a unique thing. Maybe well, it, maybe he, he just tried. Yeah, you know? but it, unique. I'm not. It's it's definitely, definitely. I think he'd be the first guy to tell you. It's got some Vince Neil influences. You know, I mean. Rock, rock, 48 hours of rock. I mean, come on, that's just, it's Neil Rock. I'm not trying to argue with you. I, it, everybody says that, and, and that was the knock on them when they came out. The best song on the the first, the only real Pretty Boy Floyd album is a cover of a bonus track from this album, Toast of the Town. Right. Everybody, I, I just, I don't know. I have some weird color blindness where I don't, I don't quite hear it. I'm not, dis- I'm wrong. You all are are right. By the way, it's an extreme compliment. Yeah. I mean, it's like there, there's no bigger compliment I could give you. And I'm surprised that band was a bigger, but they were on the tail end. But I digress. Yeah. Getting back to what this Motley Crue record, what makes it so great, is like you said, innocence. Yeah. The innocence of production. Like, you know, they're almost they're almost holding on like to this glam thing that like they were, they were going to be the last breath of glam rock. And it turned into the first inward breath of what will become hair metal as we know it, which is right. such an this is what 81 did again. We've said this a million times. Things yeah. were being done and that genre's over forever. And then genres are being started again or 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 being introduced for the first time. This one was actually great. This was the Brit. God, I'm 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 blowing myself away right now. This was the bridge between glam rock and all rock of the 70s and 80s to what became hair metal and the heavy metal that we love in the 80s and 90s. I'm right. on this the record that did that. You're hearing it right now in 1981. Right, yeah, the last Mott the Hoople song is it's the exactly. first, is the first exactly. hair metal song. Yeah, it wigs right on. So here's the crazy thing: every t- I've sort of fallen into a, a formula that just feels right, and makes sense when we do these new releases by month, and I've always stuck the metal stuff at the end because it's silly and it's goofy and it's inconsequential, and it's bands like Anvil that are doing this very on the nose thing that was very easy. I mean, things that. Even when metal did, I would argue, get a little bit more sophisticated than that, these bands were still dragged down by the assumption that a metal band is a band that wears metal studs on their clothes and sings songs with the word metal in the title. (laughs) So the funny thing is, I would argue that many of the most significant releases of this month, uh, for the first time that we've been doing this, were metal releases there's the motley crew one nobody noticed that at the time that album was self-released got picked up by electra got re-released nobody even really noticed that ozzy took them out on tour they did eight shows then they made shout at the devil then they go on mtv then it really happens for them but even putting the motley crew release which was a minor side note at the time to the side acdc for example is not a new band, isn't a band that hasn't found their sound yet. ACB, ACDC right. is firing on all cylinders. They've already made Back in Black. And the same month, The Motley Crue released their first album. ACDC released this album right here.
I don't know if I ever noticed the lyric, Rock has got the right of way. <laughs> Man. When in he doubt, just... when stopping at a stop sign, Rock has got <laughs> Always, right. always yield to Rock. Do you think this record was a letdown after Back in Black? Well, let me take a look at the track list. Wow. On one hand, how could it not have been? Uh-huh. But I mean, who who are you, who are you asking to a fan who was expecting that it would be the second greatest album of all time? It's sort of like was um, you know was was Michael Jackson's Dangerous a letdown? I don't think so. I think you would most record executives would tell you that if somebody sold twenty five last time out, you'll take twelve this time. Yes, definitely. It's almost like if you're the champion of the you know NBA and you get to the finals again, but you lose, is the is is it a disappointing season? A successful season, you know. And ACDC also had to come back down to earth. You know, they they replaced the singer, which is as we know never happens where you get bigger after you replace a lead singer, especially one as iconic as Bon Scott. They got bigger, wrote better songs, and became. Uh, you know, the, the biggest rock and roll band in the world. How else could you go but down from there? And if down means, hey, instead of 12, we're selling 8 million, well, you know, sign me up, you know? But yeah. I also think songwriting wasn't as strong. And and, and, and sometimes when records like this, you, you tour a record that's so big for so long, you are so wiped out and so burnt out. And how old is, is Back in Black at this point? Two years old? Um, Do we even know? Barely. If it is, it's just barely. Back in black, black and black came out the preceding year. So my point is, the record company went. I know you guys just run around the world. We yeah. sold a gazillion copies of this. We need a product for what? The fourth quarter, which That's we're right. in right now for Christmas. So I don't think the songwriting was as strong as it could have been if they took a year or two off. But you know, Atlantic was going to go get your asses back in the studio. This is too good because no one knew that they were going to be. You know, one of the biggest rock bands of all. I mean, most of us knew, but yeah. some did. It says um, this sold 4 million copies in the U.S. alone. I don't understand. It says it was ACDC's first and only number one album in the U.S. until the release of Black Ice years later. How was Back in Black... How, how is that like, never not number one? Right? I understand the slow simmer. Obviously, that must be what happened. But how can you sell 20 million copies and never quite get to number Fucking Olivia Newton-John and Kim Carnes. I'm telling you, they screwed up all. It's like the steroid era in baseball. All the early 80s records are thrown off because of Betty Davis eyes. Well, you, you know what's crazy, too? It's an interesting thing. Remember the big celebration when Quiet Riot had the first heavy rock record to go number one? Yeah. So... We're not in that quiet riot yet. So Back in Black never got to number one, but like you said, it just sold and sold and sold and became one of those catalog records that never stopped selling. So you got to understand, like, heavy rock, it being a commercial entity and vi- viable, was it was it was still pretty fresh. You know, having a gold record for a rock band was huge. But selling multiple units like ACDC did, that was uncharted territory. But I am surprised that this next record did just go in at number one but, you know, I guess we lived in a different time back then. You still had to prove yourself, you know? Yep. This wasn't the No Limit era where just because you're on No Limit, you were going to number one in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yep. And the same went for um, for Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy, had, again, had put an album out, I believe, one year before. Thank, Crazy. Thank goodness, Ozzy, whoever it was that compelled Ozzy to crank out another record, thank goodness they did because this would be the last album that Randy Rhodes yeah. ever played on. And I'll be honest with you, and I've listened to the Blizzard of Oz um, 
uh oh no wait wait blizzard of oz is that the live one um no that's tribute that, that's that's tribute i get mixed up because there's stuff there's stuff that's on tribute that i assume is from the first randy rhodes album that's actually from the second one the point i'm building to here in my covid foggy way is that <laughs> flying high again i i thought that that was on the first solo ozzy album and it turns out it was one of the singles off of diary of a madman to refresh everyone's memory That's a good song, man. I haven't heard that in a while. So terrific. Yeah, kind of a second tier Ozzy greatest hit. I don't even know, you know, his set list just became so rigid, uh, it, you know, towards the end. I don't know if he's still playing shows anymore. And I, I talked to Blasco, his bassist, about it. I'm like, God, why don't you guys play Goodbye to Romance? And he's like, yeah. Ozzy just doesn't think the fans, he just wants to give the people what they want. So he just plays the bang. I don't even know if he was playing, I don't know if I've ever seen him play Flying High again. Here's, what people miss about Ozzy Osbourne, he, and it's such a big thing for all of the image and for all of the guitar players and because for all the distinctive voice, has has to be the greatest melodicist in metal history. I think that's, I, I would not, I will co-sign that as I'm trying to say. He's really, you know, Sinatra was great at phrasing Ozzy is the Sinatra of metal phrasing. I know right. exactly what you're saying. You know, and he's got such an incredible tone where he sings so high, but it's not annoying. It's not that Jim Dillette, like, yeah! you know, it's not like gnarly screech. Like, you know, it just, there's, there's a beautiful warmth to his high tone, his voice. And like you said, his phrasing, the way that man can turn a phrase is beautiful, you know? Meanwhile... Black Sabbath are soldiering. I mean, we were going to heavy metal Christmas back then, 81. Huh? <laughs> it was, it was perhaps the ultimate heavy metal Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So Black Sabbath are soldiering on, and I think this is the last gasp before they really go into the abyss. I can remember as a kid watching Headbangers Ball, and they're like, here's a new video from Black Sabbath. And I'm like, Black Sabbath still, they didn't, right, all, right. They didn't all die in 1966, and it's literally Tony Iommi and a, and four guys who are just kind of- Is it like Joe Lynn Turner? Or is it like, is it anybody we even know yet? Who's no. the singer of Black Sabbath? Is, so by, was it Glenn Hughes? Was he there at that time? By the time- by the time I'm seeing Black Sabbath videos in 91, I, I would go so far as to say it's a singer that neither of us has ever heard of. Right. It might have been the guy from Badlands. I think Ray, remember Ray, remember Badlands, that band? Yeah. That, that, Jake Ray. E. Lee. Jake E. Lee, exactly. Uh, another Aussie. Uh, mm. That was one of my favorite Aussie periods. I love Jake E. Lee. Like, Shot in the dark. I love the song. Anyway, Ray Gillen, I think, sang for Black Sabbath at least in the 80s somewhere, but I digress. Okay, let's see. Who's, I'm curious to know that we're talking about it. Who sang lead for Black Sabbath on this 81 release? Oh, this is the second Dio one. Oh, so, it's a Dio? Yeah. I'm so, on Black Sabbath. Yeah, Dio was the singer of Black Sabbath for two albums. Gotcha. gotcha. Right, right, I, I right, confused. right. Tony Martin was the singer of Black Sabbath from 87 to 91? Wow. Yeah, I'm telling you, there were a couple in there that are just not even names that 
mean anything to me and I'm and I'm pretty stupid about knowing the the uh the fringe characters. That's a good trivia question. How many, you know, singers were there in Black Sabbath? I mean, there was at least I think at least 6, right? But yeah, no. I think I think that's about right. Um so this is the beginning, well, this is the end of the end of the classic era of Black Sabbath by anybody's estimation. People are divided on the Dio Black Sabbath stuff, but it was a hell of a lot better than the next couple of guys that were going to come. I think <laughs> everyone would agree. And this is the title track from The Mob Rules. Song rocks so hard. <laughs> you talking about punk rock, man? I don't mob rules. That's such a punk rock song. And good things happen when you have Tony, you know, and Ronnie James Dio and the band together. And I guess they were both in the mixing section together because the guitar is so loud. On that. Yeah, the vocals are right there, man. You know, but it needed it. It provides the energy. It's funny because it's like you, you kind of can't help sometimes listening to uh, uh, a Van Hagar song and go, I wonder what Dave would have done with that. Because as good as yeah. as good as Sammy is, Dave was the guy who really alphaed that stuff. It's the exact same thing there. I just listened to that and I'm like, man, but what if Ozzy, what if he gave, I just finished saying he's like the premier melodicist in all right. of metal history. Whereas Ronnie James Dio is more from the Snoop Dogg camp of i've got this one melody that kind of works on everything right. <laughs> well i mean it just technically ronnie james dio is a better singer yeah but you know that the opinions are like assholes aren't they you know but but i'll say when you look at black sabbath you look at van halen to me there's two different eras of the band i don't look at them as like one band you yeah. know what i mean there's david lee ross van halen and there's and there's sammy Hagar's van halen and to me there is no interpolation they're, they're just, you know, yes, they were both called Van Halen, that's it. Black Sabbath, the same way. I almost look at Black Sabbath, the Ozzy, Black Sabbath, the Ryan James Dio. It's like, not even the same band. You know, I mean, they're technically not, but you know what I mean? Sure. You, you got to cash, you got to ride that trademark. Black Sabbath is the name of the band. You don't want to change the name, but they're such distinct, different bands, different sounds. And look, I don't know which, I mean, this is going to be sacrilege to people listening. I don't know which era I like. I mean, I love that song, Mob Rules. I forgot how much I love it, you know? Did you spend any time with um, Heaven and Hell was when Black Sabbath reformed with Dio towards the end of his life? Because I enjoyed the hell out of um, the, the Black Sabbath stuff that they did with Ozzy at the end. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I definitely was a fan, and and, and, and they were they were trying to breathe some air into that. Like Jimmy Bain, the bass player, died on a, the Monsters of Rock cruise in Heaven and Hell. Did you know that? Heaven and Hell played their last gig on a cruise ship about 2017. Um, and this man, Jimmy Bain, the bass player, died on the cruise ship. And they had two days to get back to port. You know what I mean? So I, he played the gig. I think he felt sick during the gig. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a Heaven and Hell fan because I like because they played it all. You know, they did all the... Uh, Especially when um, Dio was out of the band, they had some of the you know Fugazi singers in there. Where the guys are going, we're going to play every bit of the catalog we can reach from. <laughs> and, and Heaven and Hell was associated with Fog Hat. We're playing Slow Ride, you know what I'm saying? So they really had a strong set list, but of course it wasn't the 
you know, the, it, but had, you know, Jimmy Bain was still in it and some of the other, uh, the original members. But um, yeah, it's an interesting story. So Motley Crue, ACDC, Ozzy, and Black Sabbath, and one more band that uh, may have ruined some heavy metal Christmas in, in 1981. Actually, I don't know if I if I know the answer to this. Did Kiss even release music from the Elder at the time, or did that just get shelved? Boy, that's a great question because I want to say yes right away, and and, and then. Yeah, that's that's Kiss Army are yelling at us right now. I don't know for sure. I want to okay. say it came out, but can, can you look that up? Yes, it came out. Okay, so for those who By the don't way, know, fourth quarter Kiss and business. Yeah. you know, even if they don't like that record, that motherfucker's coming out in the fourth quarter. Yeah, Gene has anyway. For the uninitiated, Kiss were juking and jiving and trying to stay relevant, and they had, I think, been although they had success, they had tarnished the brand a little bit with the hardcore by their dalliances in um, in disco, I Was Made for Loving You, and they, uh, I th- I don't know if, had they already taken the ma- the, the the makeup off think, at this they, point? I think, I, think I, I, I want to say Ace was still in the band during The Elder, wasn't he? This was the last to feature Ace Freely. That's right. So they were still in the makeup. They saw the makeup. They had gone Vinnie Vincent yet. Was, and so people, to... they're they're looking around. They're they want to stay relevant. They want to make a big statement, a big splash. And they go, well, Pink Floyd did a concept album. I for, I don't I don't sticks. Whoever the heck there's this is sort of a thing that's in the air. And they go, this is the thing that you guys need to do to rejuvenate your shit. And it just did not. It did not work. It became, I, I remember the era. Now everything is re-released and repackaged and easily accessible on YouTube. This achieved the mythical status of, uh, sort of akin to the Star Wars Christmas special of this thing that was so bad you'll never see it again kind of thing. That, that's exactly right. That's really well put. And you got to give it to them for trying because Kiss at that point, 81, was kryptonite. No one would touch them. They, they became a joke unto themselves. You know what I mean? They, they did everything. The makeup wasn't so cute anymore. You know, the songs were never that strong, if I'm going to be honest with everybody out there. They had some good songs, not going to lie, but I'm talking about being the stadium world-class band they, they became. They had to make some changes, and they went for it. Unfortunately, The Elder was not what anybody wanted to hear at any time, but now you get all these Kiss fans going, it's my favorite record, man. Yeah, right. They named two tracks off. So it's it's an interesting. I'd never listened to it before. You said Bob Ezra produced it, right? Who, I did not, but that is the that is true. Yeah. Yes, Bob Ezra produced it. Who did Pink Floyd and all that? So they were really they were really searching. They were going for that legendary. We're going to take ourselves. They probably had designs and taking the makeup off. I think if this record worked, they might have mm-hmm. taken the makeup off organically. That's 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 my uh, my opinion. Worth noting, it was the first album that Kiss had released at this point that did not have them on the cover in the full makeup. Instead, it has this very ominous, it has like this medieval looking door and somebody's knocking on the door. So they had taken- It's what you think, it's what you think the cover of, a, of an album called The Elder would look like. Just yeah. think that and that's what it looks like. A slightly more tasteful spinal tap. That's yeah. right. Which, I mean, take a listen to it. It's not horrible. It's just not Kiss. Here's the, this was the song, which subsequently they performed on an Unplugged special. That surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. Uh, A World Without Heroes off of music from The Elder.
kind of like a like a seventies singer songwriter take on Pink Floyd. Boy, that's right on the nose, right there. I, I would say the very same. You can really hear Bob Ezrin's influences, and it's not organic. The Kiss, no, you know, it just feels like Firefall should be singing this, not Kiss, you know. Um, and especially in '81, where music was going, it just it, it missed the mark. Like that is the end of that era, right there, commercially. And yeah. Kiss is driving the nail into it right there with that record. I wonder what would have happened. Because you already mentioned this, the presumption was skinny ties were murdering arena rock dinosaurs. That stuff is over. There's bands that are packing clubs on the strip and labels still won't touch them because they just say there's there's this cap on this. That stuff's not going anywhere. It's not commercially viable. If a Motley Crue doesn't happen, if a rat doesn't happen, if this this seemingly dead genre doesn't isn't reborn like a phoenix to be bigger than it ever was before... I wonder where Kiss would have gone because Kiss just like got an honorary seat at the table once yeah. hair metal blew up because they were every hair metal band's favorite band. You know, that, that's really interesting. What if Kiss stopped after the elder and didn't take the makeup off and kind of, let's just say limped through this Vinnie Vincent era, you know, the Bruce Kulik era, the, you know, the animal eyes, the, uh, that's like, yeah, to me, that was probably the most creative musically time period. That's some great songs. And, and they kind of got to the forever period, wrote a song with Desmond uh, Child, you know, and they were just limping and limping and they hung around long enough. All right, we're bringing the makeup back. But I wonder, would they have been as big if they didn't keep going or would have been a bigger, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're ace in the holes where we always got the makeup in our back pocket. You can always bring it. You're actually very smart about the whole thing. You can never, ever deny their, their, their business acumen, you know? Um, cause they brought that makeup back when it had to be brought back up, you know, Nirvana was here, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they go, let's bring the makeup back. And yeah. who loves kiss Kurt Cobain? You know what I mean? It was like a per, it was perfectly played. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's like you, 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 you have the teenagers and then you try to keep the teenagers into their twenties and maybe appeal to a new generation of teenagers. And then all of a sudden the people who liked your stuff are 30 and you're not going to appeal to uh, even the best band is not going to appeal to a fresh batch of 13 year olds. So now you just flip into pure nostalgia for the right. people for the people who used to have their, you know, your lunchbox. Now those people can afford a two hundred and fifty dollar ticket and perhaps a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, man. And, you know, the makeup was just such a look, I. People still clown on, well, they don't clown on Kiss, but, you know, oh, here, Kiss is touring again, or this never-ending talk. I think, you know, we're, we're going to not, when, when the world doesn't have a touring Kiss entity, that's going to be a bummer for all of us, you know what I mean? We Wait, always, are you are you sure there will be such a world? Because I think it's already pretty openly speculated. Well, that I think they both I'll, hinted at that. Yeah, yeah, I think they hinted at that fact. We can put other guys in the makeup and send them out there, and I think that probably is the plan. I imagine they'll do some kind of Vegas residency where they just kind of dig into the thousand seater and then, you know, make about 10 million each at night a year for not playing, you know, for using a trademark. So that's not, look at Gene Simmons will always have the last laugh when it comes to your wallet, you know, moving out of the, <laughs> the heavy metal sphere into, uh, well, okay. This is sort of interesting. We'll talk about a couple of the, the pop stuff, the crossover stuff, the the indie rock stuff that's going to go mainstream, the K-rock bands, etc. And then one 
classic rock person who actually does a very, very good job of keeping up with the young Turks. Oh, <laughs> all right. But first things. <laughs> but first things first. Uh, this is the uh, the statement album, the statement song from Joan Jett, and the Black Hearts is released on this month in 1981. We've talked about Joan Jett before, who's not a big fan of Joan Jett, but just has there ever been anybody in rock history who has done more with less pure musical talent? Huh. I, I don't know if I would uh, agree with, like, she's very talented. She's a good songwriter. She's mm-hmm. got... Mm-hmm. Do you know how many of... And I, I love Joan Jett. Do you know how many of her singles are covers? A lot. Like, oh, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. A yeah. lot. Let me just say this. Mm-hmm. Joan Jett, when I look at her, just rocks. Yes. It's it's ambiguous to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like Chrissy Hine rocks. Yep. Joan Jett rocks. And she's kicking ass in a primarily male world of rock vocalists. When I hear Most Joan said, Jett, yeah. I, and I, I'm trying to say this as, as, as sensitively as I can, I rock as hard to Joan Jett as I rock as hard to, you know, uh, Brian Johnson. Like, I just, I feel it. You know what I mean? And so she, in her core, is what rock and roll is all about. So no if that is not talent, you know, technical talent that me, look, I, I survived, I made a career off not being technical. So <laughs> you're, 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 you're driving down my alley now. But you got to understand, she's two years away from producing the Germs' first record after releasing that. So there's a, there's a, there's a variety there. There's 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 a coolness about Joan Jett that cannot be fabricated, you know. And to me, that's rock and roll. To me, that's cool. To me, that's unique. And to me, it's talent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't, it, it's, it's Michael Monroe. It's the Michael Monroe syndrome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. he the best songwriter ever? No, but he's the most rock and roll motherfucker you've ever seen. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's having a thing. It's David Johansson as well. Exactly. Just, right. Um, no, she is one. If if for some reason music had never happened, she would be the coolest lady working at a, like a rescue cat shelter or cutting hair <laughs> or something somewhere that you have ever met in your entire life. <laughs> That's my point. She just exudes cool. She's born to do this. I mean, she's been doing it so long. She's been running away when she was, what, 15, 16? Yeah. I mean, her rock and roll credentials are are impeccable. I, well, I'm, I'm going to switch a little bit. on, But I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, she going to rip raped arpeggios and, like, write these. Nah, man. That's what I, I love rock and roll is the name of her biggest song. You know what I'm saying? That's what I want from her. Who produced that? Was that Spencer Prophet? Let's find out. No, Did by, she- by, by the way, I don't want to spoil an, upcom- an upcoming episode, but... Not Joan Jett's song, by the way. No, I knew that. That, that yeah. I did know. That is produced by the lead. There's three producer credits. The first is Kenny Laguna, who's just her long-term. Oh, of course. Her long-term. Uh, uh, it's hard to know where Joan ends and Kenny begins. 
It, you know what? It, it's insane. I saw him in an airplane once. And by the way, I've said this before. You said you, 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 you lost your, uh, your, your first class seat to her, right? I lost my first class seat. <laughs> I had a switch with her so her and Kenny could sit together. <laughs> yeah. I go, no problem. Yeah. Because and, and the funny thing is that the lady brought me up to the front and she goes, excuse me, Mr. McGrath. We have a celebrity on board. <laughs> Would you mind switching with them? And I just went, of course. Are you Hell kidding yeah. me? Now, can I be so presumptuous and ask which celebrity? Yeah. And it was, I already saw Joan Jett. I already saw her in the, uh, in the thing. But it, that was funny. And I, I'll, be, I'll be prioritized by Joan Jett every day of the week and twice on Sunday yeah. when, it comes to, when it comes to seating in a plane. Yeah, Carrot Top can sit in basic economy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it was um, Kenny Laguna. You didn't. You mentioned the other two. I'm sorry, Kenny Laguna. Uh, I'll t- I, let me see. I closed it. I'll reopen. Uh, I nerd out on that stuff. Kenny, I know you do. I I love that you ask about this because it's not the first question that I always ask, but it's a question that's almost always worth asking. Richie Cordell. Richie Cordell. Okay, he's, I think he was uh, a Blackheart. He was the original he, Blackheart. I think. I think that's what you're kind of looking at. He's. Uh, Singer, songwriter, producer, wrote and produced several hits for Tommy James and Tommy James and the Shondells, including I Think We're Alone Now and Moni Moni. So you're talking well, about I mean the, the the connective tissue from and that's oh, what, what, what Crimson and Clover was the only yeah. thing to do next, you know, from Tommy Tommy James after Billy Idol had done Moni Moni. Right. Yeah. You know, this guy must have something to do with Billy Idol pretty doing money, but that's all another thing. The yeah. reason why I'm so producer sensitive, Tully, is because a lot of them get overlooked. I mean, David Kahn had such a huge part of, of Sugar A success, you know, of, mm-hmm. of molding us and, and helping us finish songs and, and getting getting the sounds. And, you know, he did he did what I got by Sublime. So he really sometimes they get over they get overlooked when it comes to award season. Yeah. You know, when I wrote this, I mean, I think producers play such an important part of so many roles. I mean, Mike Clank and Appetite Construction, you go on and on, you know. Men at Work released their debut album this same month, Business as Usual. And you know what? I think it's almost hard at this point to think of them as a band because their two biggest songs are... They can be novelty songs if you if you want them to be. Land Down Under. And, I, and they were done. They were tongue-in-cheek songs to begin with. But uh, Land Down Under and Who Can It Be Now... But they're a band. I think the videos had a lot to do with that too. No doubt. I mean, they were they were a bunch of clowns in their videos. So you really run, and especially when they were in that eighty one, they again. We always say this, so we say it every day. MTV was starting to have a real effect on these releases now. Mm-hmm. So you were thinking video as well as song going into the late eighties, certainly into eighty two. Next year we get into, but and and and, and uh, Men at Work had just enough character to. Uh, and humor to really propel these songs into heavy rotation on MTV, which led them to massive radio spins as well. That's right. And we, we, America had this weird 1980s infatuation with Australians and they were just, yeah. they were the perfect time for that. And Fosters you know what? was coming over, you know, exactly. Bobby was happening. Yeah. Going to surprise you, the Energizer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so actually I'm going to play a clip from the third signal single from the album because there wasn't a silly video to be made for this song. And so people have probably for the most part forgotten it to me. I, I don't know how many people are like, you know, I'm just going to sit back, relax and listen to land down under right now, but you might feel that way about this song right here. Get told by the teacher, not to Told by my mom. 
Ironically, totally, that had the funniest video of all of them. Did I don't remember. I, I, yeah. I feel like I watched Who Can It Be Now 10,000 times when I was a child. I don't remember that video. Yeah, uh, Be, Be Good Johnny kind of was like, you know, it didn't have the legs, the other two uh, songs had, obviously, but that was a big video. And when he goes, you're going to play football this year, Johnny? And he, he, had a, he was acting like his dad. He had a little mustache on. His hair was slicked back. That 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 video straight tomfoolery right right there. But those guys couldn't make a serious video if they had to. Yeah. I remember even their their follow up record, which had "It's a Mistake, It's a Mistake." Remember that song? Amazing song. And it talks about nuclear war, and mm-hmm. they still make a jokey video on themselves because they can't help themselves. Uh, humor was such a huge part of that band, which almost overshadowed how great the music was. But no, be good, Johnny. That that video is really really kooky as well. And Overkill must have been from the second record as well. That's that's oh, to me that dark. that's that's the, the it's 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 just I'm maybe not everyone is as prone as I am to like I'm pretty hunky dory during the day and then you just wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're like why did I not realize that everything is fucking horrible? Right. And, and that, that's that, a great song. That's their only dark video. It shows yeah. you walking around a black trench coat. And, yeah. You know, no, there's people, not a lot. Of, people didn't want that men at work. No, not a lot of laughs. Even though that's my favorite Better Work song. By same far. here, same here. But people wanted people people wanted the Vegemite sandwich. <laughs> Speaking of bands that I mean, Men at Work, not conventionally photogenic, and uh, didn't have raw sex appeal. They still figured out a way to become massive sensations, not in spite of, but in large part because of MTV. You kind of weirdly have to say the same thing about Rick Ocasek. And the cars. I can mm-hmm. also recall one million times sitting there. I don't know how much TV I watched when I was a kid, because boy, do I remember watching the video for this song over and over and over. Shake it up. Shake it up. Shake it up. Shake it up. thoughts on the cars i love the cars i have a deep profound love for the cars i was just watching a video last night with uh, benjamin orr rest his soul singing bye bye love bye bye love you know that song oh it's so great i i, I just I, I love that band um i love they have two lead singers two songwriters i think elliot easton is the one of the most tasteful guitar players of all time uh i think i i i, I I love the Cars. I, I I cannot say enough good things about them. So I should listen to Cars albums, in your opinion? Without a doubt, the album they they were made. They were an album rock band. You know, yeah. people would just select tracks off their albums that weren't even singles because they were that good. Their songs were that good. Um, and I think Shake It Up might have been the first video they tried to make for MTV. Now people were making videos, but they'd be more performance oriented. Where yes. Shake It Up had a little bit of them. And let's be honest, you ever seen the cars live? They just stood there. They were straight up statues on stage, man. Um, so you would see these videos, they had a little bit of personality. I remember seeing them, I think uh, Wang Chung opened up for them. Ah. Um, and, and they just stood there. And I'm like, is this the, the fun video? Shake it up, you know? And so they, they were really statues, but they delivered. And there would be no Weezer without the cars, you know? 
Yeah, there's, there's no pathways doubt. here. There's levels to this. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I happened to see what like the biggest songs of the year were or something, and I knew this next song was successful. I knew it was a classic hit. I think Tainted Love by Soft Cell may have been the number two song of the year, either mm-hmm. the year that it came out or the following year. So, um, yeah, who would have thought the guys who made Sex Dwarf when they were making the album nonstop erotic cabaret, who could have... I don't want to say this never happens anymore because I think things that come from the viral realm have sort of replaced the oddball out of left field. You know, you can put a little Nas X in the same category as like a a, a soft sell. Um, But yes, when they were recording this, how could they have possibly known that they were making one of the biggest songs that would come out that year or any? Now I know I've got to It actually almost makes me happy now to think about how angry that made rock critics at the time. That guys who wouldn't even pretend to know how to play an instrument would just talk a cover over, you know, that song's right. called Sex Dwarf, and then this is me talking the lyrics to Tainted Love. And and you know what? It's awesome that you don't get it. We still, you know, I, I, as Public well, Enemy said, we, we ride limos too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the same thing as I was listening to that. Go, wow, 81, this came out. I'm proud of America yeah. for embracing that, man. Yeah. That, that, that is, and by the way, the Manhattan, what, wait, four or five months away from Manhattan transfer rate, right, right about there? Do I do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how, and that was a number one song, as we mentioned. So, like, that's incredible that America embraced it, as you say. And sometimes things are so out on the fringe that they sound new, and America was ready for that. You know, and, and MTV also, we, we can never, ever, you know, uh, minimize the effect MTV had in a lot of this, you know? I mean, the, 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 I remember the video, and it was very neural looking, and, you know, it, 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 it was confusing time aesthetically, visually, and orally back then. And, you know, you could get, some, you could get by with a little bit of fringe music like this being the number one song of the year. It's crazy. And I mentioned, alongside all of these uh, hip young up-and-comers, Rod Stewart. We're talking about all these people that are not successfully segueing into the 1980s. Say what you will about Rod Stewart, and I've said most of it. The guy... (laughs) I'm going to quote it again. Whoever the fuck said it, Rod Stewart was willing to do anything to be famous, even make good music. That's fucking brilliant. Somebody you, said that? Yeah, I don't know who said it, but you but you got the faces and then the and then but just like, oh, disco sticking my finger, my thumb in my mouth. Okay, disco's the thing. Well, do you think I'm sexy? I want to give you my love touch. You know, or we're doing unplugged. I'll be classic rock again. Standards, you I'm your, you got I'm, it. your I'm your guy. You got but, it. Vegas residency, you got it. But I would argue that at every step of the way that he's been willing to do whatever the thing was that the kids wanted, he's not only survived, but thrived. To me, this song 
is is truly one of the best songs of the 1980s. There are all of these classic rock people, and granted, they may have been a little bit more bound by the fact that they were trying to be true to their art than Rod Stewart was, but I checked. Rod Stewart is credited as the number one songwriter on this as well, so it's not like he just got some kids in to tell him what to do. Rod Stewart surveyed the landscape and said, okay, this is what the people want. This is what the people are going to get. Because life is so brief. Odd, isn't it? I don't know if I've ever met one person who describes themselves as a massive Rod Stewart fan, and yet he's been perennially huge for like 50 years. He's been selling out arenas since 1971. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. If there was going to be like an odds, okay, Rod Stewart is 81. He just came off Do You Think I'm Sexy? Totally sold out. You know, what a likelihood of him becoming one of the biggest artists of the 80s. I mean, we would have, uh, there would have been a low odds on that. But when you combine incredible songwriting with one of the most unique voices in rock and roll and someone who's easy on the eyes and pretty cool and MTV is just around the corner, which helped this video out incredibly. I'm going to say this a lot now because it really comes into play. Rod Stewart was your man. People root for Rod Stewart. They do. they, they root, they want him to succeed, and he continues to give him the goods. And that's, you know, that's a, he's a very likable human being, and that's when you win, you know? It's funny, because he's, he's always made sense as rock royalty. You never questioned why he would be standing next to a Mick Jagger or a David Bowie. But at the same time, he's the guy that kicks soccer balls into the crowd because everyone's like, oh, he liked to play soccer before he got into music. I don't know if you knew that. Right. Him. He's really good. He could have played pro if he, he wanted. Played- <laughs> my mom has told me that. That's so awesome. Oh, yeah. Also, oh, yeah. also, here's my thing, and I'm not trying to be grumpy old man. I actually like the song that I'm about to play, but I would be remiss uh, if I played Young Turks by Rod Stewart and did not note what in my mind is it's very close similarity to one of the biggest hit songs of the last five or six years by The Weeknd. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, 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 blinding Lights. I, exactly. I mean, it's crazy. Well, I didn't even put that together. Oh, yeah. Wow, that is almost plagiarism. plagiarizing. <laughs> no, I didn't even realize that until you brought it up. Your Young Turks is like it, you know, it's not fresh in my memory bank. No, so but it's fresh that, in mine, Marks. No, no, I, I know, I know it is, but yeah. I mean, no, your recall was great on that. Not only is the drive look, if if Marvin Gaye's estate can sue Pharrell and uh, yeah. Robin Thicke for blurred lines. I think Rod Stewart's got a case here. You know, I think it's the same thing to me. It's at least the same feel, you know? It's cra- and it and it's and I like the song by the weekend. It's good. I do. It, it's it's the it, most played song in radio of all time. It just for the it just got it just beat some record, the longest hit number one or something. 
it's a good song because it's a vibe that didn't get done to death. Rod Stewart found a new kind of cool little lane there, and then there weren't 50 knockoffs. Because that's the thing. If, you, if somebody knocks it off once, you sue them. If 50 people knock it off, you created a prototype. That's right. You that's know? right. So, Rod Stewart also just when I wrap it up, please. he had an incredible, and I, obviously he's not around as much, well, it's not around for anybody. He had a long time of being a commercially viable artist. Meaning from like 69 until 94, he yes. was selling records, man. Yes. That, that might be the, one of the longest runs ever for an artist, ever. Absolutely. Selling records. I, if, if, if one of his albums... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I forgot about the I thought I got, forgot about the standards. You're talking about 98, you're talking about 99, 2000. Remember the standards? He sold like oh, they, three, still, three they, they still play him at the Grove, yeah. Yeah, so so I'm talking 40 years mm -hmm. of selling records. Nobody, the Stones, nobody, you too, nobody's in that rarefied air. No, and maybe it helps to be a little flexible, you know? <laughs> you got <laughs> be a bit of a chameleon. You got to have a great voice and people got to like you. So. Yeah, yeah. So let me that see. That eliminates it. most of us. We're going long on a lot of these. I'll skip. Neil Diamond was, this was the end for Neil Diamond, give or take an E.T. song. He made a uh, an album called, Yester well, he had a song called Yesterday's Songs. It was a minor hit, but this was an anomaly at the time, but was, uh, was very, very successful. Indeed, classic in its own right. One of these signature songs from all of uh, Broadway became one of Barbara Streisand's signature songs. Life was the again. you know what's crazy i would if you if you asked me when that came out i would have said 77 78 that was out the same time as soft cells tainted love was <laughs> that i i hope i have my facts right because that seemed a little odd to me as well uh memories was a compilation album from Babs released in 1981, primarily previously released material, but three newly recorded songs. Memory was released as a single from it. That that's incredible. That, that blows my mind that that was part of that era. I, I would have lost a lot of money. She recorded it for the 81 album. It reached 52 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is not all that shocking because I don't remember hearing that on the radio when I was a kid, but it was huge. I do, though. I do. I remember hearing it a lot. I mean, it was, it was huge somehow. I, 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 I've never seen Cats, thank goodness, kept that streak alive so far. <laughs> so I, when, I, when, I know, when I think of that song, I think of it as a Barbara Streisand song. It, right, right. I think it got a lot of play like in the AC stations, you know, back then, the adult contemporary. But to me, it was around a lot, and I heard it a lot, you yeah. know? Yep. But I didn't hear it right next to Soft Cell. You know what I mean? No. And I don't know if you heard it next to this next act right here. I mean, 
you're an asshole if you don't like that song. I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> and I've said that before and about this genre too. I know. This R&B early it's 80s. Such a sweet spot. It was cooking, man. There were some yeah. really great years. A lot of times people look back at 90s R&B and go, oh, I miss that R&B. This was that good stuff, man. You know, boy, what a song, you know? And not to say that there wasn't well-produced pop and rock of this time, but there's a lot of stuff where people got real, real happy on the reverb and bigger was better. And just these recordings are just clean. They're oh. just perfect, timeless, clean recordings. It's just masterful. And, and when you got, when you have vocals like, you know, like Philip Bailey, it's almost impossible not to record those perfectly. Yeah. The playing's amazing. The songwriting's unbelievable. And it's a band that was truly fully realized and know what they need to do in the studio. It's like ACDC. You know, we let, get, leave the, the knobs alone. We know how we sound. Yeah. And that, that band has always sounded like themselves. And boy, what was that? Well, they, they got a couple, they had one or two more hits following uh Let's see. They'd been around for a long time. My, my, the wife and I were doing some paint shopping the other day, so I was doing a deep dive on <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire on uh-huh. on uh, Wikipedia, as you do. Let's think. They had to at least have. Well, obviously, he was going to do Easy Lover with uh, with Mr. Phil Collins. Yeah, they're probably um, around the early seventies. I'd say Earth, Wind, and Fire probably. I'm trying to see. I don't really know how to do uh, like singles by chronology. Right. I'm just trying to think, you know, how many they got, you know, like cool, cool in the game kind of took their space with a Joe. That's right. But I'm wondering if Earth, Wind and Fire had another big hit after Let's Groove, but I, I've been wrong before. Um, Fall in Love With Me went to number 17. Yeah, I don't know about that. This might be the end of uh, this might be the end of them as a commercial powerhouse became more of a touring entity. What a way to go out, though, man! You kidding me, man? Peak yeah. our powers. Um, you tell me if you need to listen to the debut EP from Bad Religion. Bad Religion with the song "Bad Religion" off the EP "Bad Religion." It, it, is that uh, does that have "Fuck Armageddon" on it? Uh, let's see. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to, for me to say now because it's out of print as an EP. They ended up. They just started packaging it with the the first album. How could well, hell be like, any worse? If, if, how could hell be any worse? Yeah, I think that's. And then I didn't know them on the EP. I, I found them on the uh, How Could Hell Be Any Worse because that had Fuck Armageddon. This is hell on it. Yes. So yeah, Fuck Armageddon. This is hell. Is I I'm pretty sure is from the album that followed. So anyway, Bad Religion came along. But Mo, I got a question for you. Is yeah. this on Epitaph? Is this the first release? Yep, yes. Brett got like a $3,000 loan from his dad, and he had vision. I believe the EP was stamped Epitaph-001. hyphen Really? Yeah, so the assumption was <laughs> there was going to be a 002, et cetera, et cetera. I believe I read that, yeah. Imagine, uh, imagine Brett going like, you know, in nine, like an 88, dad, stay with me here, man. Just, yeah. I need a couple more bucks to get the label. I mean, I know they were kind of bubbling under and being truly indie, but Epitaph is about to be the biggest label in the world 12 years later, 10 years later, 13 years later. I remember, to me, it was odd. I'm not, I'm not here to, to judge, <laughs> but it was odd for me when punk went so fully emo and then all of a sudden you'd be on the warp tour and you'd go by the Epitaph tent and there was Brett and he was running the tent and just 
from ashes to embers and <laughs> bleed nightly she cries were all the sirens for sleeping <laughs> yeah were all of this the t-shirts he was selling and it's like i'm glad it's working dude i'm glad you guys are huge epitaph is still huge and obviously these kids are happy to be associated with epitaph but you don't have one punk band on your label that you're not in dude right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You know, the Warped Tour, to its credit, man, never gave a shit who you were or who you weren't. Everybody got treated the same. Yeah. They picked the bands out of the hat to start. Yeah. So you might get rancid playing at 1230 in the afternoon and having like lag wagon closing the, the show. Yeah. So you got to respect the Warped Tour for that. I remember we were on the Warped Tour in 97. Fly was number one on the charts. And we there were four stages. There was the main stage, the side stage, then like the hot topic stage. Then a stage that really was driven on a truck. And we have like a Pulp Fiction cover band and then us play after at 1.30. And Kevin Lyman never let us get off that. Our record was double platinum on the charts. It exploded on that warp tour. And I didn't even give a shit, but management and people were going, hey, can you move them to the third stage at least? You know, it was kind of <laughs> funny. They didn't give a shit. It's in the book. It's in the warp tour book. And they really were stoked on their ethos and they never lost it until the very end. No, that's it- why... That's why Brett was there selling T-shirts, man. That's Probably right. had a hundred million dollars in his pocket. Yeah. Was trying to move an armor for sleep shirt, you know. Oh, and 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 I saw uh, uh, Kevin Lyman, the guy who started it and ran the tour many times, just being around there a tiny little bit, like uh, grabbing a pack, of, uh, a set of keys out of his pocket and ripping open a big flat of water bottles and throwing them into a, oh, yeah. into a cooler. Like he, he was never too big for anything either. Never. They were, they were doing, they were on the bus. They were doing it. They yeah. weren't the four seasons running things. They were on the ground. They were setting up tents. Yes. They, you had any kind of attitude on the thing. They would kick your ass off that tour. So quickly your head would spin. They didn't yeah. care who you were. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it became a, just sort of a, not a joke, but a, but a cliche. Like there's nothing wrong with hot Topic. You can go to hot Topic and get a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. There's nothing wrong with Led Zeppelin. These just became, buzzwords keywords for the, neg- and the negative element of a thing but let's not forget what the warp tour actually was which was actually one of the supremely cool things in rock and Absolutely. roll history it really was and it wasn't this cool thing that happened for two days in some small town in upstate new york it was a no, fucking exactly. entity that went on for like decades it was it was it was summer camp for not only the audience but for for the bands as well it was yep. destination uh summer camping do you need to uh, hear Dead Kennedys in God We Trust? This is an EP that they put out after the big, uh, whatever the big first album was. I mean, I, I always love to hear it. You know what I mean? I don't well, then need let's, to hear well, anything. Well, then let's do it. Let's fuck off. Overproduced by Martin Hannett. Take four. Don't want to play the whole song. No, no. <laughs> were, were, were you were the Dead Kennedys part of your? Uh, never. Right? No, 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 no. But I like I I, I there were the, the the West Coast felt so far away in terms of punk rock when I was a kid because it wasn't major label stuff and it wasn't going right. to be on. They may as well have been from South Africa to me. It already passed, right? It was it had yeah. No way- but I really like where Jello Biafra sits in the thing. He's got a an individual, just vocally. He's got an individual. Uh, I don't want to say inimitable because anything can be imitated. But I can't think of a bunch of Jello Biafra knockoffs. And most people who have a successful thing that nobody imitates, it's because it was secretly pretty annoying. 
and I don't find yeah. his and I don't find his thing annoying. So much of punk rock, it's like, well, the lyrics are he's saying some really heavy stuff, but you'd actually have to go read the lyric sheet to see what the guy's saying. I like that you could for the most part get his and 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 he conveyed attitude and he was just as snide as a Johnny Rotten or name uh, name any uh, any number of other people but in his own unique way it was like a tongue in, a tongue in cheek punk vocalist yeah no no yeah, he, was, he was like some a satirist he was yeah. like a humorist you know like right, a, exactly. and, a and a political one at that uh to me a criminally underrated frontman Mm-hmm. I watched some of those old school Dead Kennedy videos and, and the way he kind of handles the crowd and you know, there's no security there. And people are jumping around. He had a really, he almost, he must've studied drama because he had, he really had amazing uh, nonverbal and, and like dramatic uh, presentation to his, his whole thing. And I, I think, you know, we know Jello as an opinionated guy who's never, you know, veered from his ideals and his ethos, if you will. But I'm, as a pure rock and roll front man, he'd probably kill me for saying that. I mean, he was he was he was unparalleled, man. He was a really good front man, and he had some great songs. I agree. Uh, there's lots and lots and lots of noteworthy new releases. We're not going to get to the Stranglers, Frank Sinatra, the tail end of Abba's Run, the second Buggles album, OMD, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Adam and the Ants. There's lots and lots of stuff that was happening then. But if I had to pick one new music release from November of 1981 to leave you with, it would have to be the debut album from Celine Dion in November of 1981. She was, I think like 14 years old. I was going to say, was she eight? I mean, my God, is this a major label release? Uh, It was released on a, um, on a Canadian label because it is, it's, it's French language. Gotcha. So, gotcha. so we know the guy, right? The uh, the manager, later uh, husband, Rene was his yeah, name. Rene Angelil, I think is how you say it. So I guess he'd been a little bit of a pop singer in the French pop scene. He he was in a band that did French language covers of like Beatles songs, and then he transitioned into management. And somebody sends him a tape and says, "You got to really hear this girl. She has this amazing voice," and um, he mortgaged his house to take her out on tour when she was like 12, brought the mom along, worth pointing out, and then she (laughs) wins some talent competition when she's like 20, and then supposedly that's the night they see each other through a new lens. And the Mm -hmm. romance commences. To their credit, they remained married the entire time. They had kids together. By all accounts, they were a very lovely couple. But yes, he was her he was her manager and he mortgaged his house. He bet the farm on her when well, it's she incredible was that he saw that talent at 14 because yeah. very rarely is a vocal, you know, realized at that age because yeah. your voice is changing all that obviously saw something in her. And this is pre-tephesis. You know, there's some old photos of her, but her teeth are like, you know, just crazy. You know, and look, I'm talking to guys. I love dental work himself. Yeah. So I understand that. I understand that frustration and that road to go down. Um, so, I guess that gift must have always been there, kind of like a Whitney Houston. It was always undeniable, or a Mariah Carey. And Renee saw it. Celine Dion's 14-year-old mouth was closed on the cover of La Foi du Bon Dieu. (laughs) And this is the title track.
talent was certainly there. That's for sure. Kind of sounds you know? like Celine Dion to me. It does. I, I heard tone got a little deeper, you know, like yeah. she lived a little bit of life, but man, it was all there. So I can see why Renee uh, said, look at, I'm going to mortgage my house. I believe in this talent. Yep. And that sold, I don't know. It's actually mildly successful in French speaking Canada. It sold about 30, um, 30,000 albums. And then the rest, as they say, was history. And that is the history. You know, I would say that is the history of new releases from 1981. I peeked ahead to the, the uh, December tens intended to be kind of a dead month. They had already got all the product out to sell for the holidays. Not much happened in December or indeed in much of the first quarter of 1982. So we'll have to find some other fun stuff to talk about the next time you and I speak. Until then, Thank you as always. Do you do you have things to promote? Are we in a world where we can we can confidently? Nah, no, no, I always week? enjoy hearing from everybody on Twitter at Mark underscore McGrath. So um, there's a few uh, out there that like to connect with us, and we certainly will answer you back and and love to be corrected. I always enjoy that, and I love to be uh, sort of uh, challenged. So let it be known. See you next time, friend. Thank you, brother.